And between that contract date and the nomination date, uh, what a lot of developers don't actually realise is if they take any steps to develop the land, they could be imposed with double stamp duty. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Property Developer Podcast. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Doing well? I'm doing great. Coming off a few weeks break and feeling refreshed, recharged and re-energized for the year ahead. It's been nice to have some time off and now I'm looking forward to another productive year. And I've got lots of great shows planned for you to help take your developing to the next level. So be sure to stick around. Hopefully my current project will be finished before the year is out. And speaking of that project, I don't really have a great deal to report. There's not much has happened on site in the past month due to the summer holiday period. But things have started back up again now and the initial site works are getting underway. Fingers crossed that we don't have any significant interruptions during the year. But if the past two years have taught me anything, it's to be ready to deal with the unexpected until this pandemic recedes. One of the goals I've set for myself this year is to release my book on property developing. I've actually spent the past few months finalising the manuscript and I'm now in the final stages of getting it ready for release, which is pretty exciting for me. So stay tuned for more news about that in the coming months. And it seems plenty of people have decided to make 2022 the year that they take a big step forward with their goal of getting into property development because heaps of people have signed up to the property developer training in the past month or so. And a big thank you to them for doing that. It's very exciting to see so many people taking charge of their futures and going after their dreams. It's never too late to get started. So if you would like to learn how to develop property, then head over to www.propertydevelopertraining.com and check out everything that's included in the course. It's all online and self-paced, so you can do the modules at your convenience. I have wrapped up all the lessons I've learned from my own projects, along with all the best tips from my guests over the years into an easy to consume course. I'd love to see you inside the training. So take a look if you're ready to take that step into property development. Remember, you can always catch me on Insta and Facebook for my latest project updates and other developing news under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. I'll continue posting cool videos of the action that's happening on my site. Now, just before we get to today's guest, who's going to give us some tips on legal issues around property developments, I did a past episode on the legal side of developing. So if legals are your thing, then be sure to go back to episode 63, where I speak with solicitor Lewis O'Brien about some key considerations for developers before they sign contracts for large amounts of money. And he had this to say. It's not hard to have a contract worth more than half a million dollars. I think it's worth spending a little bit of money talking to a solicitor who's got some experience in the area about, you know, what can I do to make this a bit better? What might I think about? What special conditions should I insert? Those sorts of questions. 
There's plenty of other great advice from Lewis in that chat, so be sure to re-listen to episode 63 of the Property Developer Podcast. Okay, on to today's guest, Christy Mullen from Burke and Associates Lawyers. Christy is the head of their property law division, and she shares a wealth of tips and ideas about getting the legal side of property development in good shape. One of the traps that can catch people out in property development is avoiding spending money to get good advice, particularly before you enter into a contract that's worth a large sum of money, be that a land purchase or a construction contract. However, good upfront advice can avoid a lot of issues later down the track. And usually problems later means it's more messy and more expensive to fix. Anyway, in this chat, we discuss where property developers often come unstuck from a legal perspective, common legal structures that are used by developers, and some key tips to consider before entering into any joint venture agreements. I am sure you will enjoy this conversation about key legal considerations in property development. And we kicked off by finding out what Christy would eat until she was sick. <laughs> um, probably chocolate. Can't go past a good block of chocolate. And um, yeah, try not to have it every day, but definitely the favourite. <laughs> uh, any particular kind, the milk, the dark? Oh, I think just anything I can get my hands on. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's always nice to indulge in some really good chocolate. There's something it special is. about it. It does something to the brain, doesn't it? It triggers something. <laughs> it does. All right. Well, we're here today to talk property development as usual, and this time we're talking legals of property development. So you're the uh, principal and director of the property law division at Burke and Associates Lawyers. So can you give us a bit of a background of yourself, Christy? how you got into law and then how you ended up focusing on the property side of things. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been with the firm now for about 15 years and I actually started out as a trainee legal secretary at the firm and um, on reception. And then I, I started studying online as a mature age student whilst working here full time and got my degree, slowly worked my way up as a lawyer and uh, here I am as a principal. I've been a principal for almost eight years now um, and just recently got my accreditation as a property law specialist with the LIB. And, and what does that mean? What does becoming a property law specialist actually entail or what's the difference? Yeah, so um, when you're a lawyer, you can't really make yourself out as a specialist in um, a particular practice area unless you have an accreditation. So um, the peak industry body in Victoria is the Law Institute of Victoria. And um, I did a few assessments this year uh, to obtain my property specialisation. And so I, I got accredited um, only last month, actually. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank uh, you. And so what are the kind of things that you focus on when you're doing those assessments that are different or beyond a general legal understanding? Yeah, look, it's it's really quite broad. Um, they're testing your knowledge on property law in general, which has, you know, so many different facets. It includes conveyancing, property development, um, commercial leasing, property disputes, the tax considerations of, of 
property matters. So um, it's really quite broad. They're really trying to test your knowledge to to see that your your focus isn't just on one particular area, but they you have a really broad understanding of property law in general. Um, because I mean, even if you're working with with a property developer, for example, it can comprise so many different legal elements. Um, it's not just you do property development. It's it's really broad what that entails. Yeah, so we're going to cover that off because it is very broad. You're right. Uh, mm-hmm. At the different points along the way, you have different legal requirements or things that you need to check off. But before we get to that, what was it that attracted you or drew you into focusing on property? Um, I think one of the main reasons I like property is um, I suppose there's a bit of adrenaline associated with it. There's always a start and a finish to to most, well, let's say most property matters. Um, So usually there'll be some sort of deadline involved. So you sort of work up to this deadline and then it's a really good feeling when you sort of tick it off, you finish it and you move on to the next project or or matter, whatever it might be. Um, So even though I I also do some commercial work as well, property is very much... um, yeah, just just these tight sort of timelines and you're always really focused on getting to that end goal and and ticking the box, whereas a lot of the other work that you do can be quite ongoing and, um, yeah, continues. (laughs) And so property development, tell us a bit about um, the kind of work that you would do with your clients in that sector. Yeah, so property development, there's sort of different cycles or, or different elements involved with property development. So um, there's the acquisition stage where obviously property developers are looking to acquire property to undertake their property development. So that also involves, um, you know, due diligence as part of that acquisition process, looking at structure, um, what's the best legal structure, are there any other parties involved or anything like that that, you know, need to be a part of it. There's the planning phase in terms of making sure that um, the developer can undertake, you know, the project that they want to undertake, doing the planning due diligence, getting their planning approval through, sometimes ending up in VCAT to make sure that <laughs> that, that happens and, and goes smoothly. Then you have the sort of off-the-plan sales process and um, getting those pre-sales through so that construction finance can, can go through being involved in the conveyancing aspect when there's volume conveyancing and, and lots of off-the-plan sales, then that then you have to do the settlements and subdivision. And along the way, you find that there's always some sort of dispute that might arise, you know, with a builder, purchaser, or some other party. And then there's also getting all your consultancy agreements and commercial contracts in place. So it's quite a sort of wide scope of work that we do. Yeah, it's funny hearing you say that because when you're doing a property development project, there's a lot of people that come on to the team at various points along the way. But for a lot of consultants, there's a sort of fixed point of where they come and go, mm-hmm. like at different cycles through the project. Yeah. And there's only a handful of people really on the team that's uh, there from the beginning to the end. Yeah, and, that's and right. And the legal... The legal um, people are one of those groups that, or one of those uh, members of the team that generally are there from pre-project through almost to post-project when you're trying to wrap things up. Yeah, that's right. So I, 
uh, put together my own property developer training program and one of the first groups of people that I um, suggest or advise people to get on board uh legal people amongst that group <laughs> and one of the first people you want to try and find and get on the team yeah and I mean there are always benefits to having us involved from the very beginning because um, once decisions have been made sometimes they're quite difficult to undo if, if they haven't been done correctly yes it's always easier to try and avoid problems and unscramble the egg I've uh, found that myself so yeah. Let's get stuck into, let's start off a little bit generally uh, speaking. What are the kind of common uh, issues or legal problems that you commonly see property developers getting themselves into? Uh, one of the most common things that I see, which um, it happens so, so often, and it just surprises me time and time again, is when someone, particularly new de newer developers, when they're looking to acquire land, often they don't get legal advice at the outset in terms of the contract of sale and so on. They'll often sign the contract in their own right, so as an individual, or sometimes they might use, um, you know, an existing company or trust that they already have in place. So they sign the contract. After signing the contract, they then realise, oh, you know, maybe I should get some tax advice or some structuring advice as to what entity I should use to, to complete the project. Now, between the date that they sign the contract, it might take three, four weeks to get a new company or trust, you know, established to take over the project. They then nominate that new entity. And between that contract date and the nomination date, uh, what a lot of developers don't actually realise is if they take any steps to develop the land, they could be imposed with double stamp duty. Um, land development is not physical land development, but is such a broad definition and can, you know, it can merely include something like the developer engaging a surveyor to prepare a plan of subdivision. So they might sign the contract, engage a surveyor, say, prepare me a plan of subdivision, nominate a different entity four weeks later, and then all of a sudden SRO does an audit and they're stung with double stamp duty because they took that step of engaging the surveyor before they nominated that entity. So that's one of the really common things that we see and we have seen property developers impose with double stamp duty even though it may have always been their intention to nominate another entity. So that's probably one of the um, really, you know, important things that we try to tell property developers is get advice at the outset. Don't do anything once you've bought the property until until you know what you're doing so that things don't go bad. Yes. Uh, it's incredible how people just sort of forge ahead and forget about some of these key pieces that they need to put in place. But you've, yeah. you've touched on structures there. So is that when you're talking to people about the kind of structures that they should wrap a project up in mm -hmm. what are the considerations that you would discuss with people yeah so um structure really does depend on someone's personal circumstances and what they're trying to achieve from their development so um, there's different sorts of property developers some people are sort of your one-time developer who you know it might be a mum and dad type scenario that they're just looking to develop their existing property and they may never develop again. 
you have your sort of family-run property developer businesses where, um, you know, there, there's benefits to having some flexibility in the structure for, um, you know, distributing income or profits so that it minimises tax. And then you have your sort of commercial developers where they're, you know, it, it could just be a commercial-run business with, uh, you know, one person in control essentially or there might be numerous people involved in the business. And then if these people are all unrelated, um, you want to make sure that the structure is right. So, you know, who's in control of the development, who can make decisions, you know, who gets a profit and in what proportions, you know, what happens if there's a loss to the development, what happens there. Um, and another critical issue is, particularly with larger developments, what happens if there's unsold stock at the end of the development and how does that get distributed between the parties? So there's all sorts of different structures, whether it's from individual, there's companies, there's unit trusts, um, discretionary trusts, and it really depends on what the parties are trying to achieve and who the parties are that are involved in the property development. Yeah, so the other party or the other group that I suggest people get on board early pre-project is is a good accountant yes definitely and oftentimes you will find if you ask the lawyer which mm -hmm. structure or option to take they'll give you one answer then if you talk to the accountant they'll give you their perspective on what they think is the right option so how do you balance those out but say in this particular instance um structures because yeah. there's accounting and tax uh, implications as well as legal so how would you Absolutely. balance those uh, questions out or how do you get the team to work together at, in that early stage where you're, where you're laying your foundations? Yeah, so look, we always try and work with the accountant, not against the accountant. The best way to achieve um, the best structure is really for there to be just open, transparent communication. Often we'll meet with the developer and the accountant at the same time so that we can talk through what the issues are and, and what they're trying to achieve. Um, otherwise, I mean, we would obviously give our recommendation from a legal perspective of what we think is wise, but we would always say, you know, you need to make sure that you get tax advice because there could be quite adverse tax implications, particularly with capital gains tax as well. So just balancing, um, you know, legal interest, tax interest, it is better when everybody comes together and we're all on the same page and we try and work through it together. Yes, it's one of those situations where you kind of have to make some decisions based on your own circumstance in terms of what outcome you want to achieve. And sometimes there's a trade-off in that, whether you're trading off tax for more cash or you know, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, it's different for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose one of the important things is, um, you know, minimising liability and risk there as well, which is um, most property developers will set up a special purpose entity to complete a project to minimise that risk. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about why that is a, uh, a wise or sensible thing to do from a legal perspective? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, essentially, if you were purchasing a property in your own name, in your personal name, if there's a dispute along the way, whether that be with, you know, the builder or purchaser or whoever that might be, um, you're essentially at risk of being sued yourself and then any assets that you own in, in your own name are also at risk of, of being taken depending on what the outcome of, of that claim would be. So when we say set up a special purpose 
entity is to try and take that liability away from you as an individual and pass that liability onto a different entity. So that might be um, a company, it might be a trust, um, but provided that company or trust doesn't own any other assets, the liability is limited to what that legal entity owns itself. So there's obviously still a risk that claims might be brought, um, but the exposure is reduced because um, you know, because of the confines of what that legal entity actually owns. And, and for example, with a company or trust, you can often take steps to wind it up after a project is completed as well. And, and once all the tax is dealt with and all of that, um, you can take steps to, to wind it up and move on. Yeah, so I'm in the process of uh, going through that at the moment with an entity that was used for a project and it's mm-hmm. sort of wrapped up. And so now it's time to close out the entity and pay tax and mm-hmm. wind it all up. Yes, yeah. And then what about joint venture agreements? Because I know a lot of smaller developers, not even smaller, but uh, particularly when people are getting started, they mm-hmm. might realise that they need to sh- uh, bring in an investor or they'll do a joint venture with somebody else or with a group of people. Mm-hmm. How would people go out approaching that and why would they do that? Yeah. So a joint venture is different to the legal structure. Um, A joint venture is not typically a legal entity in its own right. So it's essentially an agreement. Um, So there's all different types of joint ventures and it really depends, again, on what the parties are trying to achieve. I suppose the most important thing is where parties are coming together is to do a bit of a risk assessment of what, you know, what are they trying to achieve and what are the risks the risks of entering into an agreement. So to give you a bit of an example, um, you know, one question that we get asked is uh, someone may own a property, they may be approached by a developer to develop their land, you know, what are the implications of that? Well, for the landowner themselves, um, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to have to pay any additional stamp duty. But where the developer is developing someone else's land, they're taken to have an interest in the property or an economic entitlement. And so if we were acting for that developer, um, you know, it would be crazy for them to be developing someone else's land without a proper agreement in place because they will be paying stamp duty even if they're never registered on title. So that's a really important consideration, you know, what's the party's involvement? Um, You know, something like that could be avoided by the landowner engaging a project manager for services rather than entering into a development agreement so that there's no, you know, additional stamp duty there. So that's not so much a risk for the landowner, but it's more a risk for the person developing the land there. And I think when you're starting out or when you're smaller, there's a temptation to want to avoid spending money on advice, Mm -hmm. going to the accountant or going to the lawyer and asking for advice and for an agreement to be drawn up. Is that something that you see very often? Yeah, absolutely. So we do see that all the time. Um, But I suppose from our perspective, We also see when things go bad along the way. So um, in my view, it's definitely worth the investment at the outset to make sure everything's set up properly 
because if you don't get that advice at the start, um, you know, nine times out of ten, you'll end up spending more money along the way because it hasn't been done properly. So, and again, coming back to joint ventures, um, depending on the legal structure, there's all different types of agreements that can be entered into, um, depending what that legal structure is and who the parties are. Yeah, I think that's a trap for the younger player trying to avoid some costs that are mm-hmm. probably, well, that are a worthwhile investment, I guess. As you touched on, sometimes spending money to avoid having bigger problems down the track is is very worthwhile investment to make. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and let's talk about contracts. Mm-hmm. What's the what's your view on using? Again, this touches on investing in. Um, things being drawn up for you there, there's quite often there'll be industry contracts that you could use standard yes. sort of format contracts versus tailored contracts what's yep. your view on that when when would you use this like a standard industry one versus a tailored one so this question probably relates to sales contracts but also to construction contracts um which are probably you know similar in some regards so you have your industry body sort of standard contract. So let's talk about a sales contract. You'll have your standard general conditions in your sales contract. I would recommend using that standard contract because in the property industry, everyone is well-versed on what those conditions are. Having said that, um, nine times out of ten with property developments, I would say that the general conditions are not enough for a property development project. So that needs to be enhanced by adding some special conditions that are tailored to the specific project. So I don't think there's any harm in using standard contracts, but they always have to be tailored in some respect to make sure that you're considering the particular circumstances of the development and, again, what the parties are trying to achieve. So it's just a bit of a balancing act there. And um, I suppose one of the common things we see is people think that a standard contract is standard, so it's okay. But often, you know, it's the particulars that are not completed correctly or, um, you know, it just might be something minor that the party who's signing isn't aware of. And if the contracts aren't completed correctly, then there's a problem. So they need to be, you know, they need to be done properly. Yeah, and I always say to people, you just need to be aware of who drafted contract in terms of if it's an industry if it's their contract well it's probably likely to favor them so if it's a kind of building or housing industry type body that did the contract well you Uh can be pretty sure that it's going to favor the builder yeah just be aware of that when you're using them (laughs) that's right uh and then Construction contracts, I guess this is always a good one. Um, mm-hmm. Is it the same thing? You use a industry one but get it checked or do you draw yeah, it, it really ones? is the same thing. So, again, it, it depends on, you know, what's the scope of the contract. That's, it's all in the fine print of what's in the contract. So, yes, there's standard terms there that provide some protections to the consumer or the developer. Yes, they're in the, in the standard contract. But is the detail of what the scope of, you know, the construction should be, has that been inserted into the standard form contract? So um, just to give you an example, um, 
is the builder providing all the appliances for the apartments that it's building or would the developer have to go to its own expense following construction? It's just those little things that are really important to make sure that they're in the contract. Um, it's also important to check who the parties are and, you know, do some due diligence, make sure that the builder is correctly recorded and that they are registered, make sure that the builder has appropriate insurance in place and so on. So it's just checking the finer details of it. Yes. Uh, it's funny how you can overlook some of those things along the way. Um, what about disputes? What are the common disputes that you tend to see during developments? Uh, probably the most common sorts of disputes are with purchases. Uh, so, you know, it might be a simple thing as a purchaser is not ready to settle on a contract. Um, you know, once settlement is called, once a plan of subdivision has registered and the occupancy permit has issued, they may not have finance in place and they may just want an extension. So um, that may not be a dispute as such. We, we would call it a bit of a contractual dispute because the purchaser is not in a position to settle on the due date of settlement. Um, and then obviously the parties have to work through that but I suppose one of the really common ones that happens with purchases is when there's amendments to the plan of subdivision um, and particularly something like a reallocation of a car park. So we often see this in plans of subdivision. There might not be any changes in you know, the size of a car park, but it might just be that some of the lot numbers get switched and someone ends up with a car park in a different location to what they thought they were getting. Um, so something like that may not be a concern, but it may also be a concern. So a, a purchaser has a right to end the contract if there's a material change to a plan of subdivision. So it all comes down to, is it a material change? And I mean, there, there's certainly case law out there to say that a reallocation of a car park can amount to a material change because it really depends on the purchaser's personal circumstances. Um, for you know, for example, if the purchaser had a disability and needed to be on the ground floor level, then that could amount to a material change. So um, definitely a lot of correspondence and dispute around changes to a plan of subdivision doesn't necessarily mean that you know it will end up in VCAT or anything like that. But there's often, you know, quite a bit of negotiation going on um, where there are changes. What about project renders versus reality? <laughs> yes. Can so, you get into trouble there? Um, again, it, well, I suppose partly comes down to what's in the contract. So definitely want to make sure that you have architectural plans, renders in your contract of sale without specific measurements on them. Um, you know, when you're signing an off-the-plan contract, you're relying on the plan of subdivision, not the architectural drawing. So where there's a scale or measurement on a floor plan, for example, um, you know, that will probably cause a dispute if, you know, upon completion, it doesn't reflect that floor plan. So, I mean, we would recommend that any sort of measurements, um, renders, floor plans, et cetera, be kept separate to the contract of sale and form part of the marketing material so that there's no dispute about what's actually in the contract of sale. So it's just being careful about um, 
where you're producing those plants. Actually, it just made me think of a question that I wanted to ask you was about the length of contracts. Some (laughs) of these things, they're like 60 to 100 pages, but then when you actually read through them, it's only like four or five pages of it that are actually really relevant. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that? So, I mean, contracts, well, a contract for sale, they've got certain elements to them. You have your particulars of sale, you have your general conditions, that's all relatively standard. Then you have your special conditions. So it's really important to know what's in those special conditions. Um, Then you have your plan of subdivision if it's an off-the-plan contract of sale, which, which has to be included. I mean, that distinguishes what you're actually purchasing as a purchaser. Um, you have your architectural plans. You usually have specifications, again, if it's off the plan. And then you have your vendor statement. Now, the vendor statement is interesting because for a property development, you're essentially disclosing, um, you know, certain things about the property in its current state. You're not talking about the development upon completion. So in large part, a lot of what you read in that vendor statement may not be relevant to a purchaser because, um, you know, it might have an owner's corporation budget in there to show them what fees may be payable upon completion, may have owner's corporation rules and some other elements that they can use. But in large part, it's really telling you about the property in its in its current state. So um, to come back to your question, um, yes, they are long. I mean, some off-the-plan contracts are 300 pages plus, <laughs> but I think everything that's included in them needs to be in there most of the time. Yeah, it's funny because there's always sort of three or four pages that are particularly important, the ones where you sign or you write the contract sum or <laughs> the yeah. sales price, and then there's just all this other stuff in there that you glaze over as you scan through it all and I suppose from time to time we do see contracts where you look through them and you think to yourself why have these extra pages been included they're really not relevant and they're actually not required yes sometimes you have to go back and look through a contract which is usually never a good sign when you're having to go back and check through (laughs) and you start reading things going oh (laughs) <laughs> that is actually in the contract there that something has to be done by this date or this amount of time or you've got this obligation that you need to meet. Yes. All right. And then what about uh, planning disputes? You touched on VCAT just before. What role would a solicitor or lawyer then play if you choose to um appeal that decision by council? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, often with planning disputes, um, town planners are nearly always involved and they liaise with the councils and so on in in terms of trying to achieve what you want in the planning permit. Um, Ultimately, if you can't get that planning approval, the position is to take it to VCAT. Um, Obviously, taking it to VCAT doesn't mean it will be successful either. So there needs to be some consideration what the merits of that appeal are um, to consider whether, you know, there is likelihood of success. You don't want to be appealing a decision, going to VCAT, spending all that money, um, you know, and essentially delaying the project if the ultimate outcome will be that you're not going to get what you want to get anyway. So usually it's um, a bit of collaboration between 
lawyers, town planners, um, other consultants get involved in the process as well. But the main point would be to um, assess the position at the outset before taking steps to go to VCAT. And, and that may include, for example, looking at other cases um, in the same municipality to see whether the likelihood of success, you know, is going to be in your favour. Yes, I've experienced a failed trip to the planning <laughs> tribunal and uh, it's not fun spending all that time and money and not getting a result. And I think that's right. I mean, it's not just about the money. There's significant time involved. There's significant delays involved. So part of the assessment needs to be, you know, if you've been approved for, say, 10 lots and you're trying to get 12 lots, is it worth that time and money? Um, you know, you need to take a step back and consider what your goals are, what you're trying to achieve, and also look at the feasibility of it as well. I mean, if you're incurring those additional costs, is the development still feasible and will you get the um, profits that you want to make? Yes, very, very true. Uh, actually, a timely question for you. We've got escalating build costs at the moment quite significantly mm -hmm. and I'm hearing a lot, and I've experienced this myself, uh, builders coming back asking for more money mm -hmm. to complete projects. What's your advice in that situation? Because most people just throw up their hands and go, oh, we're not paying any more money. We've got a mm -hmm. contract price, which may lead to a builder going bust or stopping work. Um, mm -hmm. But what's your advice for people who might be in that situation at the moment? I mean, it really comes back to what are the terms of the contract? What is the scope of the contract? What is the builder's ability, you know, to make changes to things, to materials, to supplies, to fixtures, to fittings, all of that? It really comes back to, um, I suppose there's no one-size-fits-all answer here. It's what contract has been used, what's in the contract, what's the scope in terms of what the builder's obligations are, um, you know, what they have to use. Because at the end of the day, if it's not in the contract, then the builder probably has a right to, um, you know, vary that or request a variation if they're needing to do something, uh, which would come at an additional expense. So it really depends on what it is that the builder is talking about um, and, and what the contract says. Yes, well, it's interesting that we talk about having contracts and what's in the contract. Mm -hmm. In my experience, you can have the very best contracts drawn up by the very best people, but when someone says, I'm not doing something, you're mm -hmm. sort of stuck in this difficult situation where you have to weigh up what you're going to do. You can you choose do, to take legal action, and I mean, but it's timely, uh, costly. You're going to get a better outcome than a negotiated one anyway. It's it's kind of, I just find it a bit weird sometimes that you find yourself in that situation. That's right. And, I mean, it is a bit of a balancing act because, um, you know, if the build is in breach of the contract, there are certain steps that can be taken in that regard, but that could amount to more costs more delays, et cetera. So is it better to go down that dispute path or is it better to seek a resolution, um, you know, come to some agreement essentially to vary that contract to meet the builder, you know, where the builder wants to be or perhaps come to a compromise somewhere in between? Yes, more often than not, it's better <laughs> just to negotiate some kind of outcome rather than end up in a dispute where probably no one's going to be really happy at the end of the day. Definitely, yeah. 
Uh, and Christy, what about choosing legal advice? How would you go about finding someone suitable to work with you or to partner with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's important to find someone who has experience in the area, knows your industry, um, knows your goals and what you want to achieve, but also someone that you can, you know, have a good relationship with, have rapport with and, um, you know, know that they're on the other end of the line if if you need help with something. So, I suppose the thing that we find with property developers is when something goes wrong, something has happened then and there and they need help then and there, they can't wait, you know, a couple of days or a week or two weeks to get that legal advice. It's often that they just need to phone someone and get that advice on the spot. So that's something that um, I suppose we like to show is that we are here, we're available if something happens the lawyer is on the other end of the line. You're not going to be talking to the receptionist or administrative staff. We have lawyers who are available. We know the industry quite well. Um, there's usually someone here that would be able to, to assist. So it's really just finding a lawyer who knows the industry and who's available. Actually, do you see many uh, lawyers getting involved themselves in doing projects? Or they'd scared off by all the things they've seen. Um, I haven't myself, um, but I, but I must say that it's always in the back of my mind that you know to be a better lawyer. At some point in time, I think I will undertake a property development. So <laughs> I obviously see the property development project, you know, the whole cycle from the legal perspective, and um, you know, I'm I'm involved quite a bit with property developers. But actually being on site, dealing with consultants, you know, that's a different element that I haven't been involved in. So um, to answer your question, no, I haven't seen lawyers involved, but I I myself am definitely keen to undertake my own property development projects just to see things from the other perspective. Oh, what kind of project would you take <laughs> on? What would be... What kind of project? Look, I, I think it would probably be something small, um, you know, a small townhouse development or something like that um, but yeah I think just to just to try to understand it from from a property developer's perspective yes you have to go through a project to understand the all the unique elements along the way <laughs> that you that you have to to deal with deal so with, yeah. Yeah, would be helpful uh, one final question for you planning can be challenging getting through planning do you have any advice on whether that's going to get easier whether it's going to get harder how you would recommend people approach that so they can get their permits and keep their projects moving yeah sure so I mean one of the things that we often see is um you know acquiring a property with a really long settlement time frame getting special conditions put into the contract so that they can go through that planning process before they've actually settled on the land. So, um, you know, if they can get to the point where they have a planning approval in place before settlement has actually taken place, then once settlement occurs, they're in a really good position to, um, you know, actually commence construction or tender builders and so on. So, they've sort of fast-tracked the process, if you like, and they don't have those same holding costs because they haven't been holding the property. So um, having said that, 
obviously there's probably a limited market for doing that. So um, it really comes down to, you know, liaising with agents, talking to people in the industry. Um, It might be that you're paying slightly above market value to get those conditions in the contract, but is it worth paying that additional sum in order to get that extended settlement period and get your planning approval through so that you don't have those additional holding costs? Yes, very true. Uh, where What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, Christy? The best piece of advice? Um, wow, that's a difficult question. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to answer that one. Um, I think um, for me it's just if you want to achieve something, if you have a goal in mind, make it happen so that what's stopping you, you can always get to where you want to get to. You just need to, I suppose, have a bit of faith in yourself and um, plan for it, work through that process to achieve your goals. So don't let anything stand in your way. If you want to achieve something, make it happen. And what about your top tip or piece of advice for developers out there who might be looking to take their business to the next level? Yeah, so anyone looking to take their business to the next level, again, I think it all comes back to planning and what's the strategy behind taking your business to the next level? What are the goals that you want to achieve? You really need to make sure that you plan for it and and don't rush into it. So, again, that might involve getting legal advice, getting tax advice. Um, If you're taking it to the next level, you know, what does that look like? Does that mean a bigger development project? Does that mean taking on, you know, employees, staff to make to make it easier, to make it a bigger venture? Or what does that mean? So it really comes back to that individual's business, their plan, their strategy, what they want to achieve. Yes, very good advice. All right. Well, where can people find out more about you or about uh, the company if they're interested? Yeah, sure. So website, burkelawyers.com.au, on LinkedIn, on Instagram. Um, Look us up. Feel free to contact me directly. Um, Yeah, happy to hear from you. What's on the Instagram feed? Photos of contracts? (laughs) No, no, no. Um, Good question, actually. Uh, We have our 12 days of Christmas at the moment. (laughs) So, yeah, no, bit of everything, sharing sharing what our team's doing here. Very good. I'll have to start following you on Instagram. All right. Any last requests for the listeners of the show? Um, Just feel free to give me a call. No obligation. If you want to have a chat, find out how we can help you. More than happy to have a discussion. No obligation. Um, Yeah, feel free to reach out. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. I'll finish by saying finding a good legal person to be in your corner is a very important strategic piece in a, not just a development, I think for a property developer to have that trusted advisor in their corner makes a massive difference. So thank you for coming on the show, talking to us about legals. They're always uh, of interest. There's so many legal elements to a property development, but If you play your cards right, hopefully they're never really too much of a factor. So thanks for being on the show and sharing all your insights with us. No problem. Thanks, Justin. See you later. Bye.
You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.